Welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where tour players, legends, and the top instructors in the game share their stories, insights, and playing lessons. Join Chris every Tuesday night as he talks with the greats of the game. Tonight's show is sponsored by TaylorMade Golf, the PGA Tour Superstore, Two Under, Golf Pride, Srixon Cleveland Golf. Your best performance starts with the right golf ball. Sun Mountain Golf Bags, Finn Scooters, making the game more fun. Adele Golf, hit it, flip it, dial it in. And the Mclemore Club Experience, live above the clouds. Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro. Good evening, folks, and thank you for coming back and joining me today on Next on the T. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro. I've got a great show lined up for you tonight. But before we get to that, I want to thank all of you for voting Next on the T up to number two in the Podcast Magazine Hot 50 list for the June edition. You guys are so awesome. I'm so grateful for all of your support. Please continue to vote. And you can do so daily by going online to podcastmagazine.com forward slash hot 50. I really appreciate your votes and all of your wonderful support. Very, very grateful to all of you. Thank you. Okay, on to tonight's show. My first guest will be one of the all-time great ball strikers, Tim Simpson. Tonight, I'll talk with Tim about the mental side of the game and the work he did early on in his career with Dr. Bob Rotella. I'll get his thoughts on what's going on with the Live Tour and all the players who have decided to resign from the PGA Tour and go play over there. We'll look back to the PGA Championship. We'll look ahead to the U.S. Open at the Country Club outside of Boston. So I'm very excited to have Tim back as part of the show. He's going to join me here in just a few minutes. Following him, I'll get a return visit from 1991 Open champion Ian Baker Finch. I'll get Finchie's ideas and thoughts about the Live Tour as well. We'll look back to his 91 Open Championship victory, plus his first win on the PGA Tour at the 89 Colonial. We'll also talk about the World Championship Cup he played in in the late 80s. It was kind of a combination between the Ryder Cup and the President's Cup at the time. Looking forward to having Finchie back as part of the show. He'll join me about 25 minutes from now. Following him, I'll be joined by PGA Tour caddy Paul Tesori. I'm going to talk to Paul about his college days. He went to the University of Florida. Now, his father was a Florida State grad, so we'll hear how he broke the news to his father that he was going to be a Gator. We'll also talk about Paul's relationship with Vijay Singh, plus being on the bag for Webb Simpson now for over a decade. Looking forward to having Paul as part of the show. He'll join me a little bit later on in the hour. And then we're going to round out tonight's show with a return visit from another PGA Tour caddy, and that's Kip Henley. I'm going to get Kipper's memories from being on the bag for Brian Gay when Brian won at Harbortown in 2009 by a whopping 10 strokes. We'll also talk about Kip's master's experiences, the role his wife Sissy plays in getting him where he needs to be each week, and then Kip's big day when he was inducted into the Chattanooga Sports Hall of Fame. Kip will join me about an hour from now. So there you have it, folks. More great stories, tips, and information are coming your way tonight on this edition of Next on the Tee. And thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me tonight. Before we get started, I want to remind you about our friends over at the Macklemore. As you guys know, my buddies and I were there again a couple of weeks ago for our annual golf trip. Second time we went back. So amazing. Even better the second time around. Everything about the place is first class. The accommodations were fantastic. 
The practice facility is great and about to get even greater when they open up their new Himalayas putting green. The on-premise restaurant called The Craig has outstanding food and service. And to say the course is spectacular is an understatement. I can't say enough great things about the place, folks. Go online to themaclemore.com to see how spectacular it is for yourself. The golf course is co-designed by our good friends Bill Bergen and Reese Jones and our friend and PGA Tour caddy and one of my guests tonight, Kip Henley, said outside of Pebble Beach, it's the most beautiful 18th hole he's ever seen. Golf Digest agreed, naming it the best finishing hole in America since 2000, and Lynx Magazine doubled down on that, naming it one of the top 10 finishing holes in all of golf. See why we're all saying such great things about the course and the resort by going online to themaclemore.com. And folks, this segment of the show is brought to you by our friends over at TaylorMade. Golf is an interesting game because the better you hit the ball, the fewer shots you have to hit. That means the better you hit the ball, the less golf you actually have to play. That's why TaylorMade made their all-new Stealth Irons. TaylorMade Stealth Irons feature a cat-back design with a 3D toe wrap designed to help deliver increased distance throughout the bag and more forgiveness on those occasional, or maybe not so occasional, less-than-perfect shots. The result? Better shots more often, so you get to have more fun more often. So if you're the kind of golfer who wants to play less golf more often, try the all-new Stealth Irons from TaylorMade. Beyond Driven. Okay, now back and next on the tee with me and making his seventh appearance is one of the all-time great ball strikers and one of my all-time favorite guests, and that's Tim Simpson. Tim is from right here in Atlanta, Georgia, played his college golf at the University of Georgia, where he lettered in 1975 and 76. During his time there, Tim was named All-SEC, All-American, and a college all-star. Tim won the Southern Amateur in 1976, and he turned pro in 77. He won four times out on the PGA Tour at the 1985 Southern Open, the 1989 USF&G Classic, and back-to-back years at the Walt Disney World Oldsmobile Open in 89 and 90. He also won the Georgia Open five times, the Casserole World Championship over in France. He was named the PGA Tour Comeback Player of the Year in 1989. He had two top 10 finishes in majors, both coming in 1990 at the U.S. Open and PGA Championship. That year, he was named the Georgia Professional Athlete of the Year. In 2004, he was inducted into the State of Georgia Sports Hall of Fame. In 2006, he was inducted into the Georgia State Golf Association Hall of Fame and named the Comeback Player of the Year out on the Champions Tour. Over the course of his PGA and Champions Tour careers, He had 82 top 10 finishes and 202 top 25s. Like I say, he's a great guy, and I'm very honored he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Timbo, how are you, my friend? I'm doing fantastic, Chris. Thanks for thinking of me. I always look forward to coming on. Tim, as we've been communicating over the last few weeks, I got very excited because you've been getting healthier and healthier and maybe getting an opportunity to get back and start to play some golf. I know you've had a little setback recently with a wrist injury. Catch us up. How you doing? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, the hits never stop coming with me, I guess. But, uh, anyway, uh, as I mentioned a few minutes ago off the air to you, I've got a CAT scan in the morning to see if I have a torn tendon. Uh, haven't tried to hit any balls in three plus weeks and it seems to be doing better. So hopefully it's just a severe sprain. And uh, and I don't have to have surgery, but yeah, I'm the back's doing better. Uh, I implemented some more upper body stretches to my regular daily stretching routine, and it's really freed me up. 
uh, I was hitting the ball pretty darn good when I got injured. Tim, switching gears a little bit, uh, all the talk around the game of golf right now is about this new Live Tour and the players that have resigned from the PGA Tour to go play over there. What are your thoughts? How do you feel about this thing? Well, I have I have mixed emotions. I think it's going to greatly dampen the legacy of, of Norman and Nicholson uh, in particular with some of the comments they've made. And, you know, Norman's hero was always Jack Nicholas, and good Lord, he ripped him this week. So um, I don't know. I think it's unfortunate. Um, I understand name and likeness. Um, for instance, uh, when I had a website built a number of years ago, uh, I had to run everything through the PGA Tour, and I had to acquire my pictures from uh, Getty Images. They own the right to every picture of Tim Simpson. And um, it, 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 it's really, you know, Mickelson touched on that. that. That I'm not real big on. You know, your life is your life, and what you accomplish is your accomplishment. But um, I don't know. It kind of left a little bit of a sour taste in my mouth. And uh, I wound up last year, I just pulled my website down. Um, it's like, you know, if somebody calls me and wants me to help them, I'll consider doing it, but I'm just not, you know, not into jumping through all the hoops. But I, I do, I, I don't know a, a number of the other players that you're alluding to. I know Kevin Nas, uh, playing over there. I'm really disappointed Louis Oosthuizen is because he's one of my favorites. And I think one of the absolute most gorgeous swings in history. And, um, I, I just think, especially with the American players, I think it's going to hurt their legacy. I really do because, you know, uh, I ran into a couple of guys today uh, on the golf course. I did a playing lesson with my little junior, and um, they brought it up, and they just said it's all about money. It's all about money, you know, and, and you know, they're not all wrong. And I'll make, a, I'll make a prediction. I'll go out on a limb. I thought about this this morning, and I've told a couple of people. If Ricky Fowler has another bad year and misses the top 125, I think you'll see Ricky over there because they're going to pay him a bunch of money for his name and, and, and to play. And what's he got to lose? He has no more. He wouldn't have any status over here. He'd have to rely on sponsor exemptions. Um, but I don't know how guys jumping ship is going to affect status of getting in the major. You know, because it, it's certainly not the PGA Tour. Um, and I certainly understand competition and I understand monopolies, but I don't, I don't know. It's, it's like they're trying to buy the game. You know, when you have, what is it? Three billion, two or three billion in the bank. You know, it's like paying Dustin Johnson a hundred millions, nothing. But you know, when it's all said and done, you know, we have to be businessmen as well. And I can see both sides of it, but a side that people don't really think about are the tax repercussions. And I will assure you that his people were digging deep on that because that hundred million could turn into twenty five million. You know, yeah. you, you get the gist, not necessarily yep. twenty five, but um case in point, one year at the million dollar challenge in, in South Africa, it was the top ten players in the world invited. 
It was a million dollar first prize, hundred thousand last prize. And uh I made a quarter of a million. I think I finished third. And when it was all said and done, I walked away with ninety thousand. Wow. Um I got double taxed, then my agent took his piece of it, and I got ninety thousand out of a quarter of a million. So it wasn't wow. that great a deal, you know. Um so I will assure you, Dustin Johnson and other guys, their their financial people have dug deep into what exactly is going to be the bottom line number. Tim, I want to go back to a comment that you made a minute ago about your website, that you had to acquire the pictures of yourself from the PGA Tour. And by acquire, I'm assuming you mean you had to buy them back. Is that right? Yeah, you have to pay a licensing. And they went so far. The PGA Tour, I had, um, oh, uh, I've, I've gone blank on the term now, um, where other players say nice things about you. Um, any, anyway, okay, quote. uh, yeah, yeah, quotes from other players, you know, Crenshaw and Calcabec, Chip Beck, a bunch of my buddies that were top players, you know, that were just very, very flattering. And in their bios on my website, I would say, you know, Ben Crenshaw, winner of the Masters twice, you know, 20 something majors, world, you know, this and that. And the PGA Tour would not let me use the PGA Tour in the description. It could only say tour event. So it makes one of the all times great, great seem like just another player. I mean, they were, they were, I was shocked at how picky they were, you know. And then, um, uh, during COVID, I got an email from Getty saying basic, basically my licensing was up and come up with money for my pictures, name and likeness, you know. Otherwise, there was no more. They were pulling them off the website. And I said, you know what? This, I, I don't need the money that bad. I'm not trying to chase guys around on the PGA Tour and build a big name for myself as a teacher. I just want to, you know, teach a few young people, try to help help them become champions, help them get college scholarships. That's where my calling is now. Because really, you know, at 66 years old, I'm not going to stand out there in 100-degree Georgia heat. You know, it's... <laughs> it's um, but if it, but if it's a young person that's truly driven, um, you know, I'm pouring my heart, uh, like the little 12 year old boy that I'm working with, Lathan Hillen. This kid is, I mean, he's better than I was at his age. This kid has got it going on. And once he grows and puts on muscle, I mean, he's, he's up to 96 pounds. He's five foot tall, but good God, you ought to see this guy's short game and putting. And he's just, he's a, brilliant young kid and that's that's the satisfaction i'm getting today chris is sharing my knowledge of a lifetime um and i've always uh, I, i'm it's a no pat on my back i've just always had an ability to teach i mean there's very few players in my generation that didn't ask me to watch them you know and, and what are you doing wrong and, and if it was somebody like Finchie, your next guest, Ian Baker Finch, I'd say, okay, now, Finchie, come over here to the putting green because he was as good as it got, you know. 
And um, I, I just, I love it. I really do. I teach a lot like Butch Harmon. I keep it very simple. I'm not into, you know, drawing all kind of lines and showing you swing playing this and that. Because truly, even Adam Scott, as gorgeous as his swing is, you can probably find the fault in his swing playing. You know, to me, it's about fixing you and getting you out on the course next week to make money or to qualify for the mid-amateur or what have you. Um, you know, get make money if you're a pro kind of deal. But, um, yeah, this back to the live tour, I think it's, it's a huge can of worms. And, um, I, I don't know, but you just remember you heard it here on about Ricky Fowler and, and I haven't heard it that his name mentioned at all, but I'm just kind of a little bird on the wall this morning said, what's Ricky Fowler going to do if he loses his card? Because he, you know, he didn't make enough money to keep his card last year, but I believe, uh, he was still under the graces of, I think he had five years for his TPC win. And I think that solidified it for him. Um, am I correct there? Do you recall? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. You are right. Yeah. So, you know, you don't want to be on the outside looking in. And if you see you're going to be out on the outside and somebody says, Hey, you want 50 million? I'm like, sign me up, coach. <laughs> you know, <laughs> absolutely. Put, put me in the game, baby. I'm ready to play. <laughs> so, Tim, in that sort of same vein, if for whatever reason the live tour doesn't work out, whenever, you know, before next year, after next year, whatever, is there a path back for these guys? Do you think the PGA tour? Welcomes a DJ and Phil Mickelson and Kevin Na, whoever, back with open arms. How do you feel like, is that bridge burned? How do you feel like they get back? I don't know. And if they get back, I mean, you know, Phil's been the darling of the media for 30 years, you know, and I mean, Americans are slow to forget, you know, and, um, I, I don't know how he ever regains that adoration that he had his whole career um i i think it's kind of tragic and you know it comes down to it and i would tell him this i mean i haven't talked to him in years but we were friends when when i was on tour and i i mean i was one of the 143 other guys that he beat as an amateur at tucson when he won and i'm like good lord is this kid good but um i just I don't know. I think that it really tarnished his legacy, you know, and how much money do you need? I mean, for God's sake, he's, you know, I, I know he's blown a lot gambling and this and that, but he's got to have three, four, five hundred million invested, you know, even living in California where they're raking a giant cut out of it. Um, I just, I don't know. I don't understand why. And as far as the European guys go, I do have something I think that will pique your interest, is um, the, the Lee Westwoods, the Sergios, and there's a couple other names that you would know that elude me right now. They're on the downhill of their career. So why wouldn't they take the money? Yeah, they're not 28 anymore. You know, they're, <laughs> they're, they're on the downhill slide, you know, and, and plus, you know, it's, I can't imagine it being more than a few hour private jet flight to Saudi Arabia from, from England. Um, 
you know, so they could still, you know, stay at home for the majority of the year. One of the other things that I've heard is the success of the Live Tour might actually be in the hands of Fred Ridley, the chairman at Augusta National, because if they decide not to invite players on that tour to come to play in the Masters, they may have no chance to survive. If the players in the past champions get invited, maybe they've got a shot. Do you think that's true? Well, you know, there were rumors, you know, a couple of months back that basically he was going to tell Phil, you're not welcome. We don't need the distraction. Uh, Because just because you're a former champion doesn't mean you're automatically back in. You have to receive an invite is my understanding. And I didn't realize that until I read this article. And, um, you know, they're, they're so big, they don't want any kind of distraction. You know, it's like, you, you just don't want it. You know, it's, it's like the, the PGA, you know, DeChambeau playing the media. I'm going to try to play. I'm going to try to play and all the build up. Well, you know what? There was some guy that was first alternate that didn't get in the tournament because, you know, you were using it as a marketing thing, knowing your risk wasn't ready to play. So, you know, somebody didn't get in because, you know, he acted like he was going to play or teed off or what have you. So I, I don't know. I, I, I think there, there's got to be morals to it. And I think there's, um, Chris, only you know what's best for you and your family and me for, for myself, you know, and, you know, if, if, if I was Lee Westwood at, 46 or whatever, and somebody threw a bunch of millions at me, you know, I'd say, well, hell yeah, I don't like flying all across the Atlantic to tournaments, you know, 10 or 15 times a year in the state. You know, I would consider, you know, he's had umpteen chances to win majors and this and that and played great, falling short. But, you know, and he's got plenty of money in the bank. I've seen him driving his Rolls Royce. So, Anyway, um, I don't know. You know, there's, I guess we all have an opinion and I, I'd right. be anxious to hear Finchie's opinion, you know, but I think if you're foreign, um, say Louis or Schwartzel, you know, they're South African. Um, I think you ought to be treated a little differently than a true American that's a PGA tour member, you know, hmm. because it, as you know, you can have joint membership on the European tour and the PGA tour is my understanding. Right. Um, yep. So I, I don't know, you know, it's a sticky situation, but there is no arguing. You would agree. They're, they're trying to buy, yep. you know, the world of golf kind of deal. Yep. And, and I, switch- there is no doubt. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Finish your thought. I was going to say, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that Greg has a vendetta against the PGA Tour. There's no doubt. And there's no doubt he's getting paid a whopping bunch of money to front this whole deal over there. Um, you know, he proposed, you know, the, the World Tour, World Golf Tour, whatever, and Tim Fincham turned it down and then came right back and did it himself, you know, with, with, um, all these world golf events, you know, and 
I just don't think I don't think it's fair to to be playing for ten, fifteen, twenty million or whatever with thirty players. It's just not fair, and I don't think it's good for the game. I think that you know you take the top one hundred forty four players, you know, and tee them off, and you see who's best that week. But it's not like an invitation. That's just my opinion, Chris. Tim, let's switch gears a little bit. We talk about the mental side of the game on this show a lot. I know you did some work back in the day with Dr. Bob Rotella. What were some of the things that you two worked on together? Well, Tom Kite and I were Bob's first two clients, and Bob is still one of my dearest friends in the world. I still call him occasionally. Now it's with questions about my archery, and you know, having issues with this or that or something mental. And um, I think probably kind of the landmark breakthrough with me was relaxing more on the course, learning to talk more. I think my first five, seven, eight, nine years on tour, I was just so intense. I mean, I was like Tiger times five to the point where, I mean, I was in great shape back then. And at the end, you know, late afternoon, early evening, you know, you go back to your room, you take a shower. And I literally didn't have the energy to go to dinner. Um, that was back when they had room service and I would call for a pot of coffee and I'd have a couple of cups of coffee just to get enough energy to go eat dinner and come back. And Bob, Bob and I, you know, I've always been very perfectionistic. Um, and one of Bob's big things is per- perfectionism will get you 95% of the way to greatness, but until you put it down and and let your true talent come through, you'll never achieve great. And, you know, there's so many things that he taught me, and I've studied studied and studied his stuff. And, you know, I don't know if he still does, but for 25-plus years, he told, told people nobody in the world knew his stuff better than me. And, indeed, I've had players and college coaches and this and that contact me saying, he, he's booked, we can't get him. You know, would you come speak or tell me what to do in this situation? But it's basically taking the pressure off of yourself. And I would challenge your listeners to to pay attention this summer in whatever sport they enjoy, whether it's uh, Major League Baseball or uh, NASCAR or the PGA Tour, or LPGA, whatever it is, pay attention to when the person that wins has a crazy day, like three home runs or whatever, and they ask him, what in the heck were you thinking, Chris, when you shot 62 or when you hit three home runs today? Have them pay attention to how many times they say, I was just having fun. And believe it or not, amateurs do not understand it. They think you're crazy when you tell them that the greatest athletes on earth Work with sports psychologists on trying less in competition. And wow. there's an old saying, there's an old saying in sports, certainly in archery, which I love, we're all heroes in our own backyard. <laughs> and taking, you know, it's like you go out and carry your bag for a quick nine holes and dead gummit, you shoot 30, you know, and there's nobody there to see it and nobody's going <laughs> to believe you. You know, and then you play yeah. tomorrow in the club championship, you know, and you shoot 84. 
you know, <laughs> and um, it's it's basically if 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 and I've been asked many times in define sports psychology in one sentence, I would say it's it is keeping your conscious mind quiet long enough to let your subconscious mind do what it knows how to do. Wow. Let me give you an exa- let me give you an example. Last hole, US Open, Masters, whatever. You've got a four footer, eight footer, what have you, to win. And you're standing over taking your practice strokes and you're like, oh my God, this is to win the Masters. This is gonna be a hundred million in endorsement. Let me tell you what, brother, it's fixing to be ugly on television. You know, and, and that and and that's what happened to um oh uh the young man that won this year, the big dude, uh I've gone blank. Uh won the Masters. Scotty Scheffler. Yeah, well but Scotty, Scotty. Well that's what happened on eighteen. And his I would bet my truck that what his caddy said when he stepped in is all right, just take a breath. Let's finish this thing off because I know his mind wandered because you don't knock it three feet by straight uphill from three feet. You know, that's some serious nerves coming in. And um, another thing we work on with, with, with Bob is staying in the process and staying out of results. And that is ultra important, ultra important is if you start thinking about results like Scotty did briefly or like I mentioned, I mean, I've done it. Everybody's done it. it it's not going to be a happily ever after ending, I don't think. <laughs> yeah. At least it wasn't for me on a number of occasions. <laughs> so is the same thing true, Tim? If we look back to the PGA Championship, I mean, Mito Pereira, he had one hand on the Wanamaker Trophy. And I'm not sure what that swing was on 18, but the next thing you know, he's in the water, and a couple of minutes later, not only does he not win the championship, he's not even in the playoff. Yeah, it, I, I'm with you. It was an ugly swing, but he was 15 feet to the left, not not 40 yards, 15 feet to the left. He's got a shot at the green with a 8-iron. And the tournament's over, you know. Um, but I would also say if he was choking, he would not have grabbed that driver. I think he was in the moment, and I think it's like, let's pick our target and let's handle business. Um, I thought he did a magnificent, humble interview, and I hope he makes millions and millions of dollars in endorsement off of it. And I don't think it's the last you're going to see of, of this young man. And he played incredible. He really did. And it, it was tragic. It, it was it was like John Vanderbilt at the uh, yeah. British Open years ago. You know, you got you got the Masters. You know, you got one sleeve on the jacket, and you know, basically have a heart attack. <laughs> so I I don't know. I I thought it was tragic. I about teared up. I'm like, oh, please don't do this. Uh-huh. You know, but yeah. And the and the crazy thing is, um, uh, what's uh, the, uh, oh, gone blank again? The tall, thin kid 
hits it, hits it like I used to and puts it worse than I used to. Um, <laughs> kid that finished second in Masters last year. Yeah, Will Zalatoris. Yeah, Will Zalatoris. I mean, he's thrashing it all over the dadgum place and getting away with it. Justin Thomas hit some crooked shots, and Mito's just down the middle on the green, down the middle on the green. You know, and, and you forget that he hung it on the lip on 17. Could have gone. Right. Quarter of a turn. Or he'd have had a two-shot lead. He could have kicked it off the tee on 18. <laughs> right. So. Tim, as we look ahead a couple of weeks to the U.S. Open at the Country Club outside of Boston, you were the first player in tour history to reach nine under par at a U.S. Open. You did so at Medina in 1990. Talk about your opening rounds of 66-69, because U.S. Opens don't usually allow for such great scoring. Well, I was I was hitting on all cylinders, and I'm sure after all the years of teaching Tiger and watching other players, Butch is probably Butch Harmon probably changed his his uh, thoughts, but. I know he told me and told many people for years after that that it was the greatest two rounds of all striking he ever saw. And um, I, I just, it's something that it, it's kind of like Mito. I will I will be laying in my coffin thinking about losing that tournament. I missed seven putts under four feet the last two days to finish fourth or whatever I finished. And, I mean, it just crushed me. It crushed me. It was wor- it was worse than getting knocked off the Ryder Cup team in '91 when I was too sick with Lyme disease. Um, you know, and I got knocked off on the last hole of the PGA Championship. But um, it, you know, life goes on, and as you get older, it's it's not the end of the world. You know what? Your kids still love you. My dog still loves me. Life goes on. And I think that, unfortunately, we make golf the be-all, end-all. You know, that it is the whole world on this putt. You know, and and uh, as sad as it was to watch what happened in the PGA Championship, there were probably very few people three days later at dinner still talking about it. You know, it's like, well, it happened. You know, it's a bad break. Tim, with the U.S. Open being there at the Country Club in Brookline this year, golf historians are going to remember that that's the site where Francis we met defeated Harry Varden and Tim Ray back in 1913. Curtis Strange won it there in 1988. Were you in the field there in 88? Yes, I was. I don't remember what I, how I played. And, and ironically, which is very unusual for me, I don't remember a lot about the golf course. Um, I remember 18 finishing right, right, right behind the clubhouse. Uh, I remember a lot of rough. I remember you had to maneuver the ball, you know, which is the big thing that kids don't like today. They like to swing, you know, come out of their shoes and half fall down. They don't like putting it in tight <laughs> fairways and drawing it and fading it as you saw at Colonial a couple of weeks ago. And, um, you know, Johnny Miller made a great point. I don't know, 12, 14 years ago, uh, U.S. Open that was outside Chicago was, a, uh, uh, I think it was at Olympia Fields. It was, a, I think Jerick won. It was a shortish course, but you had to maneuver the ball. And Johnny said, you want to tiger proof a golf course? This is how you do it. You bring the fairways in at 20 yards wide. You go the rough up to your knees and you roll the greens and make them like rocks. 
and tuck the pin. It's not making them 7,500. You know, you put ball striking at a premium, and now you've got the U.S. Open. Tim, before I let you go, for the folks out there wondering, how can I get Tim Simpson to take a look at my swing? Tell them how they can do it. Well, uh, my my email that I give out is timbogolf99 at gmail.com. And all I got to do is uh, shoot me an email, and, or they can, they can call Harbor Club down here at Lake Oconee, and they'll get in touch with me or give you my number, and we'll go from there. And you you still need to come down here now. You and I are supposed to get together, Chris. I know it. Trust me, it's on my bucket list of things to do. I gotta get. I gotta make time to do that, Tim. Is is, is my is my beloved dead father would say, "Son, the price is right." I told you, <laughs> I'm gonna charge you, so you got nothing to lose. Hundred <laughs> percent right. Tim, I love you, my friend. Well, I listen, can't thank you enough for taking time out of your night to come back and be a part of the show. Thank you so much, Chris. And please uh, give my best wishes to Finchie, a uh, true class gentleman and one of the greatest putters the game has ever seen. I will do so. Stay safe, my friend. All the best to you and your family. Look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thank you so much, Chris. Call me anytime. See you, buddy. Appreciate you. Take care, Tim. That is the great Tim Simpson, and I tell you what, folks, I am a hundred percent got to get down there and spend some time with Tim. There's, there's uh, probably nobody, like I say, nobody was better, the better ball striker than Tim Simpson was. So there's no one better that can fix your game, and my game needs a bunch of fixing. So I'm looking forward to getting down there and spending some time with Tim, and then getting him back on the show again, hopefully very soon. Okay, before I get to my next guest, Ian Baker Finch. I want to give a shout out to a couple of our sponsors, starting with our friends over at Strixon Cleveland Golf. Your best performance starts with the right golf ball at Strixon. A global leader in golf ball technology and innovation, Strixon offers a wide variety of award-winning golf balls for golfers of every skill level. Whether you're searching for a tour performance golf ball or a distance golf ball with incredible feel, Strixon provides the best golf balls at incredible prices. Strixon offers a wide variety of personalized options while also developing a highly visible colored golf ball as well. Select the right golf ball for your game today and trust it with Strixon. Check them out online at Strixon.com. S-R-I-X-O-N.com. Find the right golf ball for your game today. I also want to remind you about our friends over at Sun Mountain. There's a company nestled in the Valley of Missoula, Montana that embodies the essence of quality, function, and innovation, and that's Sun Mountain, which started building golf bags back in 1981. They are an industry leader in golf bags, travel covers, outerwear, and push carts. With flagship products that you've come to know, like the C-130 cart bag, the 2.5 ultralight stand bag, the club glider travel cover, the speed cart, and Rainflex rain gear. Sun Mountain continues its quest to provide the very best in golf products to every range of golfer. Visit them online at sunmountaingolf.com to look at their amazing products. Okay, now back in Next on the Tee with me is 1991 Open champion and now a fantastic broadcaster, Ian Baker Finch. Let me remind you about Ian's background. He's from Queensland, Australia. He turned pro back in 1979, and he credits Jack Nicklaus as his greatest influence, saying he based his game on Mr. Nicklaus's book, Golf My Way. 
He won his first professional tournament at the 1983 New Zealand Open. He finished third in the World Series of Golf in 1988 and started playing regularly on the PGA Tour in 1989. He won his first PGA Tour event at the 89 Southwestern Bell Colonial. He would win again that year at the Bank of Boston Classic. He won the 91 Open Championship at Royal Birkdale, finishing with rounds of 64 and 66 to win by two over fellow countryman Mike Harwood and three strokes over Fred Couples and Mark O'Meara. The following year, he finished tied for sixth at the Masters and second at the Players' Championship. In 2000, he was awarded the Australian Sports Medal for Achievement in Australian Sports. He's now clearly one of the best golf analysts in the business, and I'm very honored to have him back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Ian, thanks for coming back on the show. Good evening, Chris. How are you? Lovely to be with you again. I'm fantastic, thank you. Ian, I, I got to start tonight by getting your thoughts on this whole live tour thing. It's the talk of golf right now with the first tournament coming up this week. Do you think this tour is, is going to make it? Well, that's the uh, $64,000 question, isn't it? Is it going to make it? Um, it certainly made headlines uh, these last year or so and certainly the last week. First, uh, first ball gets struck on Thursday and... Uh, you know, I'll be up in Canada calling the Canadian Open. Um, speaking to the people up there, they're not too perturbed by it, although they're one of their ambassadors, um, Dustin Johnson, has jumped ship and he'll be over there. Um, I, I don't really know what the guys on the PGA Tour can complain about with, uh, with the way the tour is run these days and the way all of the world tours are run and the amount of money they have to play for. I'm not really sure... Um, why they'd want to leave or why that anyone would ever want to question anything that's being done here. But I understand the money is excessive and maybe the 54 holes and the shotgun start or whatever that may uh, end up being or whatever that appeals to them, I'm not sure. But I just know one thing, that if you're going to leave a legacy in the game of golf, you're going to leave it on the PGA Tour. You're not going to leave it on this uh, on this rival tour, in my opinion. If that tour were to fail at some point, and we know they have billions of dollars set aside, they have a three-year plan for sure, but if it fell apart in that three years or after that three years, do the players that have left the PGA Tour, do the DJs and the Phils and the Sergios and all those guys, is there a path back, or do you think they've burned that bridge? I really don't know. I, I doubt it, and uh, I do believe this tour will continue on uh through the, the eight events this year and into next year. And they seem to be um, telling the players that have signed with them that it's going to go for three years minimum. So what happens after these first few tournaments? We'll just have to wait and see what the ramifications will be. But um, for those that have resigned their membership, I'm not sure what the way back would be. Ian, as I've been listening to other shows talk about this tour, some of them are suggesting that the success actually sits in the hands of Fred Ridley, the chairman at Augusta National, because if the players that have been past champions, the DJs, the Phils, the Charles Schwartzels, the Sergios, suddenly don't get invited back next year to the Masters, or other players that would have qualified don't get invited back, that this tour has no chance. Do you think that really their success does rest in the hands of Fred Ridley? Do they get an invitation, you think, in the mail to come back and play? 
I, I really can't speak to that, Chris. I, I wish I could, but um, that's a long way off. I know the players that do play this week that are exempt for the Open Championship in, uh, in Brookline, the, the US Open. I, I know they're expecting to come back and play with uh, the, the USGA people saying that they're, they're not doing anything about it, so they will be able to play. But what goes on after that, I have no idea. Ian, I want to go back to your playing days. And speaking of the Masters and Augusta National, that's a place you had success during the course of your career. You finished tied for 7th in 91, tied for 6th in 92, tied for 10th in 94. Talk about playing Augusta National and how you learned to be so successful there. Uh, you know, I loved Augusta National. I still do. I loved doing the broadcasting there with CBS the last 16 years and with Australian TV prior to that, after my playing days finished in 96 there. Uh, it's a great golf course. The greens are superb. I think if I had been a little less aggressive with my putting style, I may have even done better. Uh, it was always my putting that let me down there rather than helped me, uh, unfortunately. Uh, I was known as a good putter, but I, I was a bit aggressive, so I had a lot of three putt. And I think that uh, when the greens get that fast and they're that perfect, good putters sometimes get too, I don't know, too too aggressive, too, they, they just, they start trying to hold everything. If you look at the record of uh, Masters winners, a lot of them aren't necessarily the best putters. A lot of them are great lag putters. A lot of them are great chippers, uh, great drivers, you know, not necessarily great putters. And uh, it's an interesting, it's a bit of a conundrum really because you think, oh, you won at the Masters, you must be a great putter because those greens are so good. But I think it's uh, the best, strategic players that win there, the guys that um, keep the ball under the hole, the guys that chip the ball well, um, hit their irons the right distance. I mean, great second-shot golf course. It, it's just a, it, it's a, an amazing tournament venue. And, um, yeah, I had three top tens. It's funny. <laughs> Nick Baldo, who I work with at CBS and have done for 16 years, he had three top tens there as well. But his three top tens were three wins. <laughs> and uh, we, we joke about that all the time. And in all the years he played there, he only had three top tens. But they were all, uh, they're all W's. But great course, great, great tournament. You know, one that we all want to go back and play. And Ian, like I mentioned in your intro, you learned how to play the game from reading Jack Nicholas's book, Golf My Way. And then in the mid-80s, early 90s, there you are playing in major championship fields right next to him. What was it like going from reading his book to playing with him? Hmm, yeah, uh, very special and, and being good friends with him now. Sitting in the tower with him last week at the memorial and uh, being able to talk to him on the telecast like we do every year uh, is very, very special. He, uh, we, we live two miles apart. His house is two miles from mine. I played at his golf course yesterday here in at Lost Tree where he lives. Uh, down in, in Palm Beach Gardens, North Palm Beach. Um, he, I, I had the opportunity, my first time I played with Jack was the 1985 British Open. And uh, his caddy, uh, Jimmy, came over to me on the practice range and he said, hey, uh, would you want to come have a practice round? I said, yeah, I'd, I'd love to. He said, yeah, Jack's just waiting on the tee if you want to come join him. And the two of us went off and played a practice round in the Open Championship at St. George's in 1985. 
and that was a very special day and one one that I remember vividly and remember lots of things that happened that day and uh, he, he's a great man and uh, obviously you know the greatest golfer of uh, of the century and my idol and you know just a, a lovely family so very very honored uh, and humbled to be able to call him a friend now as uh, having grown up idolizing him and Ian, in 1989, that was your first full season over here on the PGA Tour. You get a win at Colonial, mm-hmm. and you do so going wire to wire, playing on a foreign exemption. You win that tournament by four mm-hmm. strokes over David Edwards. Talk about getting into that tournament and then walking away with your first PGA Tour victory. Yeah, it's a long time ago now, uh, but it was. I'd been playing in Europe and Japan. Uh, I was 28 years of age, and my wife, Jenny, and I decided that uh, when we were going to have children that we'd move over and try and play on the U.S. tour. So late in 88, Jenny was pregnant, and I decided to come over and play uh, a few tournaments to see if I could earn my card for the 89 season and uh, lost by a shot in uh, at the World Series of Golf. I led the whole week, and I bogeyed the last two holes to lose uh, Mike Reed won in a playoff over Tom Watson. I'd played with Tom uh, the last couple of days. Anyway, I made enough money to, to earn a temporary card and played in 89. Haley was born in February. We moved over when she was three weeks of age. And the Colonial was just my sixth tournament that I played as a rookie uh, in that year and, and was lucky enough to win. Colonial's a great golf course. And at that point, Chris, as you may remember, uh, Arnold's tournament at Bay Hill, Jack's tournament at the Memorial, and Ben Hogan's tournament at the Colonial, they were the three big tournaments on the PGA Tour. And I won 180000 It was one of the very few million-dollar tournaments at that time. And it really set me up. It uh, validated my decision or our decision to move over here as a family, and we've lived here ever since. And now I do the TV and have done for 20 years. Uh, just uh, very, very fortunate. That was really the start of it all. And my daughter lived here, uh, and she has a little baby herself now, similar to the same age as Haley was when, when I won there. So uh, it's really come full cycle. Ian, just a couple of more before I let you go. And in '91, obviously the big win at the Open Championship at Royal Birkdale, and you burst into the lead thanks to a third round 64 that included nine threes. On your scorecard, you mm-hmm. finished Eagle Birdie. Mm-hmm. Talk about what came together that round. Yeah, it was uh, Royal Birkdale that year. The, the Greens had had uh, some difficulties, and they weren't great. The weather wasn't good either. It was kind of windy, and I think two under par led after two days. I was at two over. I'd shot 71-71. And uh, I just started holding a few putts on that third day. Uh, as you said, I made a nice eagle at 17 and hit it to a foot or so on 18 for another birdie for 64. And that just gave me the confidence uh, leading the tournament the next day, having led um, a couple of times before and being in the last group in 84 and 90. I just had that confidence to uh, to go on and get it done the next day. But that, that finish on the Saturday... Um, just gave me that self-belief that, hey, you can hold a couple of putts here. You know, go out tomorrow and do what you know what you've been doing all year. And um, went out and shot 29, the front nine on Sunday. So 
uh, Birkdale is one of the great golf courses, one of the great uh, open rotation courses. I think all of the players would have Royal Birkdale in their top three, maybe alongside Muirfield or St Andrews. It's uh, maybe Turnbury now, but one of the great golf courses, certainly, that uh, the Open Championship is played each time, and I'm fortunate to be a champion there. It's, uh, it's kind of made my life, really. I've always been known as... Uh, you know, Finchie the Open champion and uh, got my name on that claret chug, which was always a, a lifetime goal of mine. I want to go back to the 80s now. And at the end of the season, you guys played in a team event. It was called the World Championship Cup, which was like a combination rider and President's Cup. You had teams from the U.S., Europe, Japan, Australia, New Zealand paired together. You got to play in that event a couple of times. What was it like getting to be a part of an event like that? Yeah, that was that was really uh, a fun event to play. It was six man teams. It was called the World Four Tours Championship. So it was Japan, Europe, Australia, and the USA. And um, back in those days in the eighties, I think we played about eight years in a row, eighty five, eighty four, through to ninety one or ninety two. I think was the last year they played it. Um, good fun. We played uh, medal match play. Um, you, you, you had to shoot a score. It wasn't wasn't true match play, but it was um, you know you had to beat your opponent or get a half point for a half. And uh, Australia won in 1990 in Japan, which was a, a feather in our cap that year um, to play against the great players from the US and Europe. You know, Greg Norman would play and Curtis Strange and Hal Sutton and Nick Faldo, and it was uh, you know Jumbo Ozaki from Japan. Sayoyoki, Tommy Nakajima, they all, all of the great players played, which was, uh, something pretty special. And for all of the tours to play against each other, uh, really meant a lot to be on the team for a start, but then to see how your game stacked up against the other players. These days, the PGA Tour is the preeminent tour, and all of the best players in the world play on the PGA Tour. All of the other international players, like myself, Australia is my home tour. Europe is is the European players, uh, English and, and European players. Uh, that's their home tour. Um, they can go play their own tours whenever they like, but they all like to come congregate and play the Europe, the US tour, and that's where the the competition is. If you're going to be one of the world's best players, you need to win on the PGA tour, and you need to win here to perform well in the majors in my opinion. So that's what we all aspired to do. And uh, really since 2000 on, I think it's like a 50-50 thing now. The PGA Tour is 50% international and 50% US. Um, actually, they could hold the, the President's Cup down here in Florida every year because most of us live here. They could We could all have a home game. But <laughs> it, it's, uh, you know, team team golf is a lot of fun. But the PGA Tour is where uh, the stars are born and, and legacies and uh, history is created. Ian, before I let you go, remind our listeners, how can we stay up to date with all the great things you're doing and then obviously listening to you on the broadcast? You're broadcasting on Well, board. yeah, thanks. I'm, I'm with CBS Sports, um, have been for 16 years now and hope to be for another 16. We've got a great team at CBS. Um, I'm, I'm on Instagram, Ian Baker Finch on Instagram, but I'm not a self promoter. I'm not, uh, not trying to 
sell anything or promote anything. I'm just me, and uh, I'll post a few family photos and a few golf photos occasionally from tournaments that we cover. But basically, you can catch up with me from 3 to 6 Eastern every weekend on CBS. Well, Ian, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to come back and be a part of the show. It's always fun having you here. I hope we get the privilege of catching up with you again soon. Thanks, Chris. Lovely to be with you. I'm, I'm sort of in between tournaments. Uh, you know, just got back from the memorial today and heading out uh, tomorrow for Canada. Uh, should be good fun up there. The RBC Canadian Open is going to be a great event. It's uh, one of the truly great courses in North America, St. George's. So uh, make sure you tune in and watch. Absolutely. Take care, Ian. Thanks, All the best Chris. to you and your family. We'll catch up soon. Cheers, mate. See you, Ian. That's a great Ian Baker Finch and folks, uh, tremendous. Like you heard from Tim Simpson in the segment prior, right at the end, right? What a great putter Ian Baker Finch was. What a great tournament he had in 91 to win uh, the Open Championship. You talk about a, a, a great couple of nines, 29 to start out the final round. You think a guy's nervous sitting on a lead two strokes ahead of Seve Ballesteros. Oh, by the way. And then he goes out and shoots 29 birdies, five of the first seven holes in his final round. That's the way to come out strong. And uh, like I say, Ian is just one of the best golf analysts anywhere in the business. So fortunate to have him on the show. I look forward to catching up with him again soon. Before I get to my next guest, Paul Tesori, I want to talk to you about our friends over at Adele Golf. Have you been custom fit for your putter or even for your wedges? Adele Golf is the industry leader in scoring club fitting. Their putter fitting system is the most complete putter fitting system in golf. The EAS line of putters can get your putting dialed in. Also check out their swing match system wedges with weight adjustability to make sure your wedges are truly fit to your swing. Go to AdeleGolf.com and schedule your fitting today. I also want to give a shout out to our friends over at Squares Golf. Are you like me, always considering new golf equipment, maybe a new driver? Well, let me reset your thinking because I discovered Squares Golf Shoes. The patented Squares Toe provides balance, stability, and a wider base for increased connection to the ground, effectively increasing your swing speed by 2.2 miles per hour and an average of 9 yards of distance. Independent testing proves it. That's right. It's proven in science. Go to squares.com, get the Squares 30-day money-back guarantee, and use promo code DISTANCE to get $20 off. Remember, distance comes from swing speed, and swing speed comes from your connection to the ground. Squares, the distance golf shoe. Okay, now next on the tee with me is PGA Tour caddy Paul Tesori. Let me give you some background on Paul. He's from Ponte Vedra, Florida, played his college golf first at Central Alabama Community College, and then at the University of Florida. He was a part of Florida's 1992-93 National Championship team. In 93-94, he was the number one player on the team. He helped them to win their second consecutive SEC championship, plus wins at the Gator Invitational and the Puerto Rico Classic. He placed tied for 13th in the National Championship in 1994. His four-round total of 285, three under par, is one of the best scores in relation to par in Florida history. And that season, Paul was named All-American in First Team SEC. He turned pro and made it through Q School in his very first attempt in 1996. And he played on tour from 1997 to 1999. 
From there, Paul turned his attention to being a caddy and has been caddying out on tour for about the last 20 years. He's been on the bag for Vijay Singh, Jerry Kelly, Sean O'Hare, and now Webb Simpson. And I'm very excited he is with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Paul, thanks for coming on the show. Chris, what a pleasure to be on the uh, on the call. And if you don't mind, can you run back through all of that again? I relived some good memories with you as you were doing that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. <laughs> <laughs> I like that very much. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Paul, let's go back and start at the beginning. When did the game of golf become a you know kind of a big thing for you? When did you fall in love with the game? Yeah, so I was pretty young when it happened. Um, I grew up here in St. Augustine, Florida. My grandfather was a starter up at Tonavidra Inn and Club. My dad played golf as well. Both were good players, both were scratch. Um, and so when I was five years old, you know, my dad, in order to go play golf on the weekends, he needed to take the little guy with him. And so I would just ride around with him. And uh, by the time I turned seven, it was time for me to start playing. I picked up the clubs cross-handed, and I was waiting. I was, you know, away I went. Um, pretty much fell in love with the game right away. Um, was pretty good as I got a little older. My grandfather said, I'm not taking any more tournaments. So you switched that grip. And so immediately I went from cross handed to regular and the game got better kind of quick. Um, all the way up to, you know, when I went to, uh, to high school, there was kind of two sports that I had shown some promise at and that was baseball and golf. And, uh, for me, uh, you know, my dad sat down and said, Hey son, you know, it, if we really want to look at, at college scholarships and everything else, you're going to need to pick one. I said, all right, Dad, I'll pray about it and just see what happens. I prayed about it, had a game the next day, got hit in the head with a fastball, came home and said, Dad, I want to play golf. I'm ready to go. <laughs> so that was, a, that was a very quick decision for me. Uh, it was one of those things that you know, I tried to be tough and get back in the box the next time. They say, you know, after you get hit, especially in the head, to dive back in deeper. And my next three swings, I was all falling away from them, and uh, it wasn't a very hard decision after that one. So I decided to start focusing on golf pretty much. Um, only golf at 16, which would have been going into my junior year of high school. And, and that was kind of it. Paul, I read that your dad is a graduate of Florida State. How did you break the news to him that, hey, dad, guess what? I'm going to go be a Gator. Man, you know, I, I think he thought it was a joke at first. So I grew up, everyone in my family had graduated from Florida State. Um, and I grew up the biggest Seminole fan you've ever seen, hiding behind couches, watching some missed extra points, losing to Miami each year by one. and You know, back then uh, there was no other chance. If you lost, you know, one game early on in the year, it seemed to be all she wrote back in those days. And so just lived through all those uh, close calls with Bobby Bowden and, and Florida State. And, you know, I grew up hating the Hurricanes and the Gators. That, those were the two teams that you just, under no circumstances, were you ever rooting for them. And so uh, when I got out of high school, um, you know, we, didn't really have the finances to be able to travel the country and play a lot of amateur golf. I was a good player. Um, I had won the bat school classic here, shooting 130 over two days, um, and was a good player, but just, you know, no real notoriety. So I went to a junior college um, in central Alabama, Alexander City, and it was the greatest decision I had made at the time. Uh, played a ton of golf, um, played well, second-ranked uh, junior college player coming out of junior college. So when I had a opportunity. I went to as many places as I could. And at the time, Florida State did not have a strong golf program. Uh, Florida did. And I only went on the recruiting visit. To be honest with you, we used to get paid by the NCAA per mile. And I had dad sell gas cards. So for me, every time I went on a recruiting visit, um, all my boys at Central Alabama, you know, we would all have free beer for two weeks. And 
so we were good to go. They would just send me on, all right, Paul, like, go do your thing and come on back. I really only went on that recruiting visit, to be honest with you, just probably for the money. So we could afford to have, you know, maybe a little extra food for the week, a little extra groceries and a couple extra beers. And when I left, um, Florida on that recruiting visit, uh, Chris Couch was there. Brian Gay was there. Obviously coach buddy Alexander was there. I remember leaving and I'm like, whoa. That was different. I had been to Auburn on a recruiting visit, and they had a good team at the time. Uh, obviously, Florida State. Um, I had been to a couple other ones as well, and I left there. I was like, that was different. And so I called Dad, and he goes, hey, son, how did it go? I was like, well, I don't have a full ride there. I had a full ride everywhere else. I only had a 75% scholarship. I was like, Dad, like this place is different. Um, everything about it is different. The competition is different. The way they act is different. Um, it just seems like a, cha- a, cha- a championship atmosphere. And me and Chris Couch had gone head-to-head in a lot of events, and I'd played with Brian Gay in the last round of the Future Masters that year. And so I knew uh, the guys that were there. They seemed to be loose but, you know, very serious about golf. And I said, this might be the right answer. And my dad, just being typical of him, he's like, son, you go play wherever you, you know think is the best for you. Um, and yeah, that was kind of it. And then lo and behold, the first year I go to Florida, who wins the national championship in football? Florida State. Warwick Dunn caught an 82 yard touchdown around the left side against Florida at Florida Field. And my first year of being uh, an anti Noel, uh, they win the national championship. So that's kind of my little gator, uh, seminal to gator story. <laughs> You mentioned Buddy Alexander. He's one of the all-time great college golf coaches. Talk about what it was like to play for him. Yeah, you know, I think I had kind of Buddy 1.0, Buddy 2.0. I had come in as a junior college transfer. I was expected to start and do well right away. Um, we always, the way they kind of did things back then, but the first qualifier, everybody tees it up for 10 rounds. And the top five scores, you're going to the preview, which is just where you play where the national chamber is going to be held later that year. I won the qualifier. I think I was 14 under. Um, I won the qualifier, and everything was good to go. And I went to the first golf tournament, and I really struggled um, at the preview. I think I shot three rounds in the mid-70s, finished back in the pack, last on the team, and came back, and my confidence was down a little bit. And, you know, Buddy was a guy he never really wanted to mince words. I look back on it now, it was exactly what I needed, but when you're kind of young and cocky, arrogant and all that, you don't want to hear kind of hard truth, and Buddy gave me hard truth, and so the rest of that year was a big struggle. I I only played in four events. Um, I did have three top tens in those four events, but I just had a hard time supplanting myself. Um, Eventually, I went to SECs and regionals as a backup. Brian Gay got hurt one of them. Guy Hill got hurt in the other one, and then I was at the national championship um, as well, but did not play. Um, we had guys, you know, that were hurt. and I had guys kind of fight on my behalf, but then they ended up winning the national championship. And I never, I'll never forget this feeling. Like, I was excited for the boys, but I was also down at the same time. I'm like, I know I'm good enough to play at this level. And I kind of had to look back on the year. And, and our little kind of postseason meeting, Buddy and I, we, we had a rough one. It was not good. And I remember being so angry that I stood up and I said, I tell you what, I'll come back and walk on next year and I'll show you how good I am. And again, arrogance, uh, cocky, young, stupidity. Uh, and I left and I thought I was going to go play for Coach Brooks over at UNF and I went home and talked to my dad. My dad said, no. He goes, if, if you're still on that team, that's where you're going to go back and play. 
you don't just quit because you know some of your scholarships been taken away or because things weren't easy. And I just went back to kind of prove everybody wrong the next year. And um, long long story short, I got ten top tens my senior year. Uh, played great. Uh, you know, we won regionals, we won SEC championships, and ended up finishing third to Stanford um, in the NCAAs to try to go back to back. But uh, I just, I'll never forget the experience and all the growth that I had from year to year. And even to this day, I consider Buddy not only a friend, but just one of those people that came around in my life that shaped who I ended up becoming. Uh, I needed a lot of that kind of hard love, hard truth that he gave me, and I had the utmost respect for him. And like I said, still consider him a friend today. Paul, I read that after your senior season, you actually stayed in Gainesville for a couple of more years to sharpen your game and make a run at Q School. Talk about what you did over those two years to get prepared. Yeah, so I stayed for one full year. Um, I wanted to get my degree. Um, I was pretty honest with myself. Uh, I, people said I, I needed to probably have more confidence. I, I just considered myself a realist. You know, when you're on, we had seven guys on that team, the team of five. We had seven guys play either Corn Ferry or PGA Tour. So that'll show you the depth of talent that was on that team. Our qualifiers were beastly. Um, just trying to get a spot to play on the team, you had to beat guys that would be starting anywhere else. And so, you know, I just knew that I needed to get my degree. Uh, I wanted to do it in, you know, commercial management one day to be a GM at a golf club somewhere. And so I wanted to make sure I got that done. So I stayed for a year. And then that next semester, you had to do an internship somewhere. And this was kind of where my career took a little change. I always thought that, you know, I'd love to get in the program one day, become a head golf professional, eventually become a GM. And I remember that first semester when I was a GM down at Marsh Creek Country Club in St. Augustine, Florida. They brought me as an intern, and, you know, you learn everything as an intern. Obviously, you're running the shop, you're running inventory, you go outside, you do, out, you do carts. And I'll never forget being so tired after these 80-hour work weeks and asking the other guys who are assistant golf professionals there how much they were making. And when they told me, I couldn't believe it. I'm like, well, I can't do this for the rest of my life. I'm not going to make 25 grand and work 80 hours a week. Like, that's not possible at the time. So I immediately started practicing and playing. And so the reason why I decided to make a full run at it was because of how hard that job was. I was fortunate enough um, that, you know, first try through Q school, I'd started playing a little bit before. Um, I was in good form going in. I got through all three stages and got out on tour, and that had have been for the 97 season. Around that time, you and Vijay Singh became friends. Talk about that and the influence he had on you and your game. Yeah. So, you know, I was one of the very – so back then, contracts looked very different. Tiger had just finished his first, like, quarter of a year. I think he played eight to ten events that very first year. He won twice. But his little boom hadn't quite happened yet. 97 was his first full season on tour, and it was my first full season. And so my contract with Ping at the time was $10,000. Um, and travel was still expensive. I didn't have any money, and I started not playing well. I had a torn rotator cuff and a torn labrum that I tried to play through. I didn't really know a whole lot about medical exemptions and all that, and kind of back in that, in those days, you just tried to play through pain. Uh, it wasn't as much, you know, kind of common knowledge about the things that you could do to get healthy now. I didn't know, so as I tried to play through the pain, my left shoulder would pop and would be painful. I eventually got the swing units. Uh, so after 10 events, um, I decided to shut it down, had rotator cuff and, and labrum surgery. And that had been in 97. And when I did, I started healing. I would just go out to TPC and I would chip, I would putt, I would do all the things I was allowed to do. I couldn't really hit balls, 
obviously DJ being out there, him and David Duvall, who I grew up playing against, we would just have a lot of short game competitions in the back. And I think DJ saw how, how hard I worked and how much I loved the game. Quickly, we became friends. Uh, we would go to lunch together. Uh, we would talk about just kind of life and golf and all of that. And when I came back in 99, uh, healthy and go back, I was completely broke. I was working full time as a teacher up in Uly, Florida. And, you know, VJ would, he would help me out. He'd be like, all right, this week you're not allowed to play golf. Um, you're practicing with me every day. We'll pay you a hundred dollars a day. And that was a lot of money for me at the time. And so, yep, I would do it. Uh, I would do my five days. And, you know, we would hit balls together, lots of wedge competitions, lots of chipping and putting, um, gambling in between. And then, you know, he would go do his thing. I'd go do mine and we would meet back up. So VJ became a friend, but also a mentor. VJ was always great with young guys, especially young guys that were hungry. Uh, not just hungry for golf, but maybe uh, a little hungry too, struggling, uh, financially. And he would always help those guys out. Those are things that, you know, people never got to hear about him. But obviously when I was going through that, I had no idea that one day he would ask me to go work for him and that would kind of change the trajectory of the rest of my career. Yeah, that's an interesting story. I read how you became VJ's caddy back in 2009 after he had won his second Masters. He asked you for some swing advice, which ended up kind of being a job audition. Talk about how all that unfolded. Yeah, so um, so in 2000, I went to Q school in 1999. Um, I didn't play well again, missed in second stage. I just decided right then I was done playing. Um, the joy had left. I was still kind of struggling with the swing yips at the time. I would play well in practice, shoot, you know, 62, 63, 65, and I would tee it up at a tournament. It was hard for me just to shoot under par. and So I had to be, you know, kind of honest with that. I was teaching at the time, and one day uh, the phone rang. It was Veej. He said, hey, Pauly, uh, just been struggling with the game a little bit. you mind coming out? Let's have a little practice session, and maybe you can take a look. So I did. Went out. We had a little practice session together. I, I mentioned two things in his golf swing that I thought, you know, were a little bit out of whack for him. We talked about it. He goes, hey, in two weeks, uh, you know, I've got a week. I, I'd like to use you. Do you want a caddy for a week? And at the time, I was making twenty grand a year teaching full-time, and I'm like, heck, yes. I, you know, I'd love that. He was ranked, I think, 18th in the world at the time. Like you said, he had won the Masters earlier that year. Um, and so we went to Flint, Michigan, finished top 10. At the end of that week, he asked me to go to the PGA as his teacher. And it just so happened the PGA that year was at Valhalla. Um, and he got paired with Jack Nicholas for his last PGA and Tiger Woods, who was going for, um, would that have been major number three in a row at the time? That would have been, yes, three in a row, uh, cause BJ had won the Masters that same year. And so you can imagine the crowd, uh, each, each day. It was like nothing I'd ever seen. You got Tiger Woods going for three in a row, Jack Nicklaus playing his last PGA, and then BJ, who obviously was a very recognizable figure at the time, had won the Masters that year. It was unlike anything I had ever been a part of. BJ struggled, um, you know, missed the cut, and that Friday night he asked me if I wanted to come work for him full-time. And, you know, I didn't really know what I wanted to do at first, um, but talking to my bosses at the time, who's now actually a caddy on the PGA Tour. He goes, you have to take this opportunity. It's too good to pass up. And so I said yes, and away we went. Uh, that would be the, you know, that was kind of it for me. I didn't know if it was going to be my kind of career at the time, but definitely uh, it turned into a an extremely full-time job very quickly. And, Paul, after you had stints on the bag with VJ, then Jerry Kelly and Sean O'Hare, Webb Simpson called you, and I read that five minutes into that conversation, you knew this is what you had been waiting for. Why did you know? 
Yeah, wow. Um, first of all, I'm not that smart, so it's not me for sure. Um, we'll, we'll call it something different than that. But, you know, one of the things that I learned working with Beach was that, you know, we, we were having a hard time. He was having a hard time closing golf tournaments. And this would be back in 2000, 2001, and early in 2002. And so we set out midway through 2001 to change his golf swing. DJ had a really shut face at the top of his swing. When he got nervous under pressure, the ball would go left. And so it took about a year for it to take place. And once it did, voila, we saw what happened. He won 17 times on tour in the next three years. And it was really cool to be a part of that, to be a part of the, the golf swing change. It was I think I had 11 days off in 01 at a 365 and 12 in 02. And Veej only took one day off total in those two years. And it was long. It was hard. It was sweaty. Um, but all the work paid off. And so as I went to my next job being Jerry, I saw that a lot of things I took into that job work. Uh, Jerry and I had a lot of success together, President's Cup team together over in South Africa. Then I went into O'Hare, uh, a lot of success together, won a few times, again, a President's Cup team in San Fran. And so I was seeing that, obviously, when I put into play what DJ and I did, kind of the process-oriented approach, things were working well. And so in 2010, after Sean and I split up, I really wanted to work for a young guy. I wanted to work for a young guy that was a Christian as well because all my other jobs had lasted about three years. I was a brand-new Christian at the time, and I just wanted a relationship that might last for, you know, seven years, eight years, ten years. Um, and it was something I had always dreamed about. So I had two really good offers time one guy top five in the world the other guy top 20 in the world um really good offers for me to go work for him and uh, i kind of needed those jobs um but it just i was holding off just to see if somebody else called and i was gonna actually accept one of those jobs later that night and at 4 p.m in the afternoon i think uh web called went to voicemail i called him back um we talked and sure enough i took the job and i remember getting done and me and my now wife were sitting there. We we're looking up the stats. He was 213th in the world, had just kept his card in the last term of the year, the year before. Kind of looked at each other like, what did I just do? Uh, I just passed up two guaranteed jobs for a long time and, and chose this young kid who has obviously struggled so far in his career. Um, I just knew who he was as a person. That's all I knew. And so I took a chance. And I wrote down all these goals for that first year. I'll never forget. I wrote down my goal for us was $2 million, seven top tens, which both would have doubled his career at the time. It would have been more money than he made in his career, and it would be double the amount of top tens that he had had. At the end of the year, he made $9.3 million on the course. Um, he had 12 top tens, I think 23 top 25s, finished second in scoring, second in the FedEx Cup, second in the player year um, voting. I don't know. For me, he became a great friend very, very quickly. Our personalities meshed and he fell in love with that kind of process oriented approach. And it was just, you know, he's still obviously a dear friend of mine now, but it was an incredible year that I'll never forget. And also that validation that this process oriented approach that kind of VJ and I dug out of the dirt together. Uh, it's worked now for three straight players and it's worked well. And so, um, you know, it's a, it's a special year and it was a special time. And I don't take any of the credit. I was led there uh, by, you know, I would say by faith, um, definitely by someone smarter than me. Paul, just a couple of more before I let you go. And obviously all the talk around golf right now is about the live tour. I'm sure Webb was approached about going over there. Want to get your thoughts. Why would Webb not want to go over there? And where do you see this whole thing going? 
So I don't think anybody really knows. Um, obviously, we've all heard that, you know, they now have, what, $2 billion more uh, set aside for the three years. So it looks like they have longevity for at least three years. Um, you know, I sit on the side that, uh, you know, I, I'm not a, I'm an American through and through. Um, you know, 9-11 was 15 of the 19 terrorists being Saudi Arabian, Osama bin Laden, or Osama bin Laden being Saudi Arabian descent. So there's some things there for me, um, that would be really difficult. But at the same time, these men that have accepted this, you know, offer to go play with Liv, it's generational money and can drastically change their lives. And so I don't judge anybody who went. Uh, it's not for Webb and for myself. Um, you know, just we feel like, you know, where the money's coming from, um, who's backing it. And, you know, that's to each his own. Everybody's allowed to have a feeling on this. I'm also a PGA Tour geek. Um, you know, I walked on my first PGA Tour course when I was five years old, which would be Sawgrass over at Sawgrass Country Club, and, you know, fell in love with it then. My favorite player was Mark Hayes, because that's who won that year. And so I grew up, you know, with every PGA Tour book. They used to come out with that book every year, and, you know, I would, I would save it. I would study it. And so that was my dream, was to win PGA Tour events, was to eventually caddy and win PGA Tour events. You know, my little bio, 25. Uh, PGA Tour wins the caddy. And so that's where my allegiance is. Um, the tour has been extremely good uh, to me and the family. Uh, and I'm going to back it with everything that I have. And so, you know, I don't think Webb's going anywhere. Um, I'm going to go basically wherever Webb goes. But there are other guys that are in situations that, you know, financially it's almost impossible to turn down. You look at Peter Ulan. Um, you look at um, Bland, you know, who went. And, you know, these are guys that, that need the money, uh, and there's no guarantee here. I, I think within the next probably couple of months, you're going to see maybe another 10 that are going to go, only because you got guys that are struggling to keep their cars here, stars. Uh, the Ricky Fowlers of the world hasn't kept his car. This will be three straight years, you know, if he doesn't keep his car. But, you know, again, for him, he's a huge draw. There's a lot of money up front. And so I'm rooting for the tour. I hope the tour is successful. Um, I do like a lot of the format things they're doing on the Live Tour. I think the tour will adapt adapt some of those things just to make it a little bit more interesting viewership. Um, I know there's a lot of conversations having maybe less tournaments, increasing the purses, that kind of stuff, but there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes, and I don't envy Commissioner Monaghan's, uh, you know, his position at all. Paul, you have a wonderful foundation that you started. Talk about the great things you're doing there. Man, I just love our foundation. It's called the Tesori Family Foundation. You can check us out, TesoriFamilyFoundation.org. But my wife and I started it about 12 years ago now. We've been fortunate enough to be able to raise over $2 million and give that all of that back uh, you know, to local community, to the national community, too. My favorite program that we have is called the All-Star Kids Clinic. We do uh, a clinic for 25 kids with special needs, one-on-one instruction with PGA Tour players, caddies, coaches, and the local first tee. Uh, we've been able to do over 50 of them now. Uh, we had plans for 23 throughout the country when COVID hit. Uh, we're back up to 10 this year and hopefully, you know, we'll get back to that 20 or 30 mark. Uh, we're going to expand it onto the LPGA tour as well. And these clinics are amazing. Um, I've had Jordan Spieth, Bubba Watson, Webb Simpson. Um, I'm missing a bunch of guys here that I haven't even called out yet for doing this stuff with us, but every single time a player does one with me, they cry. I get players and caddies 
coaches coming up to me with tears in their eyes like, thank you for this. We just forget so quickly how good this game has been to us. And we get so stressed out with those three-footers, five-footers, that cut seven iron or a hook and eight iron, whatever we're going to hit. And You know, these kids, if they hit one good and they're happy. Uh, if they hit it bad, that's no problem. They put another one down and they go. And They just get so much out of it. And that's really what it's about is us being able to give back to something that the game has been so good to all of us for. And so that's kind of my uh, little big one. They would do another uh, thing called uh, uh, Christmas Tree Angel where we go shopping for 100 families, kids and adults. We buy, we wrap, we deliver. Um, and anything we can do to give back. And, you know, the amazing thing I've seen all along, and, again, we're fortunate enough to have given back over $2 million in the last 12 years, is that it's a family. And the more we give, the more we get out of it. Uh, and so, um, you know, I just you know recommend anybody check us out, storyfamilyfoundation.org, any way you can help us, either financially, volunteering, or just praying for us. We, we accept it all. Paul, before I let you go, let our listeners know, how can they stay up to date with all the great things you're doing, whether it's following you online or it's on social media? Yeah, so uh, follow me on social media. I think Twitter's at Paul Tessori and Instagram's at Paul Tessori as well. You can see I'm extremely original uh, going through those two, but um, I don't do enough. Um, I'm trying to start doing a little bit more, just a little bit more updates. You know, Webb and I have been through a little bit of a slump these last two years. Um, it's been hard. Webb's been hurt. Uh, been through some battles, uh, and we're just now starting to come out of that. So um, as he starts to go through this next little stretch coming up, I'm just really looking forward to some good golf and maybe do a little bit more daily updates as far as Webb's golf is going and what we're working on. Paul, I can't thank you enough for being a part of the show tonight. I, I feel like we've just barely scratched the surface of the great things you've done in the game. I hope we get the privilege of having you back on the show again soon. Chris, I really appreciate Love geeking out on golf. And when we get this thing turned around, maybe after our next win, we'll jump back on again. There you go. Paul, take care, my friend. All the best to you and your family. Look forward to catching up with you again soon. You too, Chris. Thank you, buddy. Bye-bye. You bet. That's the great Paul Tesori. And like I say, folks, I feel like we've barely scratched the surface. He's done so many other great things in the game. Look forward to catching up with him soon. And please go out and check out the TesoriFamilyFoundation.org. That's the site. Shopping for 100 families at Christmas, raising $2 million. How fantastic is that? Paul's a great guy. And like I say, look forward to having him back on the show again soon. Before I get to my next guest, Kip Henley, I want to remind you about a couple of our sponsors, starting with our friends over at Two Under. Two Under Men's Performance Briefs have just released their new Spring and Summer 22 collections. With fun, new, and exciting prints like the Freedom 2 and 3, Santa Fe, Tigers, Zebras, and Duckies. And their new exclusive Folds of Honor collection, where they donate 20% of all Folds of Honor sales proceeds to that cause. The patented Joey Pouch technology delivers maximum comfort, fit, and performance while preventing any unwanted skin-on-skin contact or chafing. Good for anything from the golf course, to the boardroom, to the bedroom. You can find these two underperformance briefs in over 4,000 golf pro shops nationwide, all Shields Sports Stores, all PGA Tour Superstores, Golf Galaxy, Dillard's, and other fine retailers near you. You can also order them online at 2under.com. That's the number 2, U-N-D-R.com. 2under, performance in your pants. Use code NEXTT20, that's N-X-T-T-E-E-20, for a 20% discount on the 2under website. Also want to give a shout out to our friends over at Golf Pride. In golf, light grip pressure releases power. 
Golf Pride engineered a secret the pros know. A larger lower hand encourages lighter pressure. Plus 4 technology is designed with four additional layers, which reduces tension in the lower hand to generate more power. Play Plus 4 and release the secret the pros know. Now available on Tour Velvet, the winningest grip on Tour. Grip confidence, grip golf pride. Okay, now back for a fourth time, and next on the tee with me is PGA Tour caddy Kip Henley. Let me remind you about Kip's background. He's from Chattanooga, Tennessee, and is one of the most decorated players in Tennessee history. He was a Chattanooga City Prep champion in high school and a winner of the Ewing Watkins Award for being an outstanding junior golfer in the city. Played his college golf at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga, where he lettered every year from 1979 to 1982. In the 1981-82 season, Kip played in four tournaments. He had a top five, a top 10, and finished second on the team with a season scoring average of 76.10. That top five, oh, by the way, just happened to be in the Southern Conference Championship. In 82, Kip was named All-Southern Conference. That season, he also had a top 20 finish at the Marshall Invitational. Kip has been a PGA Class A professional since 1988. He played out on the Hooters NGA Tour, the Corn Ferry Tour, and a few times out on the PGA Tour. He won the Tennessee Assistant Pro Championship, the Tennessee Section Championship four times, the Tennessee State Open twice, once as an amateur in 1982, and once as a professional 15 years later in 1997. He's been named the Tennessee Player of the Year five times. He won the Golf Channel's Big Break 2 in 2004. He had back-to-back top 20s in this Tennessee Senior State Open in 2017 and 18. He's been a caddy on the PGA Tour for players like Jason Bond, Garrett Willis, Stuart Sink, VJ Singh, Austin Cook, Brian Gay, Boo Weekly, and now William McGirt. In 2014, the Chattanooga newspaper, the Chattanooga, ranked Kip the eighth best player all time from the city of Chattanooga. In 2017, he was inducted into the Chattanooga Sports Hall of Fame, and I'm very honored he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Kip, thanks for coming back on the show. What's up there, Mr. Chris? How are you, bud? I'm fantastic. How are you, my friend? Hey, before I say a word, I'm going to do like Congress. Mr. Speaker, I yield back my time to Mr. Tesori. Holy cow. Was that <laughs> great stuff? <laughs> Indeed. I'm going to listen to the story for the next 15 minutes of me. <laughs> oh, what a great friend and great human Paul Tesori is. I call him Tosori. I always have, but well, he's always been a kind, helpful guy to me. I mean, that was such an interesting. I think I tuned in with about 15 or 20 minutes to go in it. Man, I was just stuck to my phone listening to that. I wish he was taking my 15 minutes. No kidding. <laughs> I appreciate it. Kip, I got to start by getting your thoughts on this live tour thing. What do you think about the guys that have gone over there to play? And is this a tour? I mean, we know that they've got funding for the next three years. Thing, something that uh, you think is going to have longevity? Uh, this will make a lot of people upset, but I sure hope it has longevity. And I, I hope it has longevity with no detriment to the PGA Tour. That's possible. I think there's room. I think there's room in the game for both the both the tour big time. You know, the tour has built an absolute dynasty on on how to run and be a a, a tour and what they've done. And I mean, I couldn't be a bigger fan of Jay Monahan. 
I'm the I'm his number one fan. The guy is absolute dynamite. And the guy knows all of us caddies interact with caddies interacts with the, the top players and the bottom rung players. <coughs> Sorry. Um I can't imagine a guy doing a better job than what he's done. Uh so I'm praying that somehow this thing this live tour blows up without hurting the PGA tour. I don't fault the guys going over there one single bit. I mean, I've always said that the PGA tour players are the most underrated, I mean, underpaid major sport uh athletes in in the in the world. You, you compare their as much TV time as they command. You compare them to basketball, football, baseball, and all these other. They, these guys don't make the money those guys make, and now that some of them start making, I think they'll only push the tour to start working harder to build bigger contracts for themselves and TV, and it, it'll it, it's going to make everything be better. I think. Um, I'm excited for the live tour. I'm, I'm I hope like crazy it goes, Chris. So, Kip, how do you think it can be successful without taking more players from the PGA Tour and then watering down what the PGA Tour has, just being devil's advocate? I hear you. And uh, I think that if, I think the Tour, this, this is me, you know, and I'm sure there's bigger guys, smarter guys out there than just no broken down caddy, but I think the Tour missed the boat a little bit on not trying to work with them and bring them into the you know, the tour helped, they bought like the European tour at one point, right? Like three, right. four, five years ago. I think they missed the boat on trying not to work with them and have them part of it. And I hope they look at what's going on and see how it looks like this is going to go. And there's going to be guys that go and hope they, they step back and look at it, make a plan and say, uh oh, maybe we need to do this right. Maybe there's room for both of us. I hear, I, a hundred percent here. The people saying blood money and all these things. And, and part of it's true, you know, but that culture is different than our culture, Chris. And is it better to stick your head in the sand and to say those guys are murderous idiots and they don't, they don't see the world the way we see it. We're all about everything. Or do we interact and do we go through sports and do we grow through each other? Do we look at what they're doing properly? And in their lives, and we gain from that, and they look at what we're doing properly in life, and they gain from that, and they look at what we're doing negatively, and they gain from that. We look at what they're doing negatively, and vice versa, and it makes the world a better place. Period. I don't care if you, you can you can say push them away that you know they're different religion, they're different everything, and we hate those guys, and they're always going to be idiots, and you can treat it that way. Or you can start to come together as countries and start to look and grow off each other. And that's what the game of golf is doing. I just don't have that blood money mentality that people are having. And I think it's wrong. Obviously, they're making mistakes over there compared to what we're doing. Obviously, we're making mistakes to those people. If you're a kid in Afghanistan who are our drone blew up their family, the innocent family, they don't think America's doing everything perfect either. Let be without seeing cast the first stone. It's just, I think we need to drop all our gloves and start to talk, come to the negotiating table. That's my opinion. Kip, let's switch gears a little bit. 
One of your jobs, I would imagine, as a caddy is to help your player play better and for helping him make his dreams come true. How do you view your role in helping somebody else achieve their dreams? <laughs> That's exactly what we do. You know, even though their dreams are part of our dreams now, you know, a lot of our dreams burned out. Most of the, the caddies had dreams of being players. But the thing is about most of the PGA Tour caddies, we stepped in so many holes along the way, you know, and we can look back in our career and see where, uh-oh, I fell down there, or I fell, I should have never went this way, I should have went that way. And that helps us be a part of the next guy's dream. You know, we go, hey, be careful. You know, I did this once, <laughs> and I changed everything I was doing at this time instead of waiting it out and dancing with the girl that I brought, you know, to the dance. Don't step in that hole. Be careful. And the best caddies, that's what we do. You know, uh, we're, we're riding the backs of our players, obviously, you know, that, and if you get a great player, you can help them be even greater. But if you get a terrible player, you can't make them win the Masters in two years. It just ain't going to happen. You have to have the talent on the other side, the guys swinging and playing. But the, I think part of me being an okay caddy, you know, obviously there's better caddies out there than me, but, Part of my uh, being as good at my job is I stepped in so many holes along the way. I really did. So I think I can help guys, up, you know, a little bit here and a little bit there. Caddy's going to make a little bit of difference at the end of the year. These guys are looking for any little tiny edge because the 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 play is so tight now on the PJ Tour. You look at the cut numbers; cut numbers are dropping every year. The winning totals aren't changing a whole great deal. Cut numbers are falling, and they're packed up, and guys are shooting a lot of the great scores. So if you play okay, you miss cuts now. So you've got to play good, solid golf. So those guys are looking for the tiniest of edges, and I think the best caddies provide a tiny edge for some of the boys. Kip, you were on the bag when Brian Gay won going away at Harbortown back in 2009. He won that week by 10 strokes. Talk about being on the bag that week for him. <laughs> such a special week, you know. Uh, I think the year prior, we had fi- Brian had finally broke through, and he had won uh, the Mexico event. And I think it was an off-field event at the time. And it, I don't even think it even got him in the Masters. I don't think it did. I could be wrong on what I'm remembering, but we had he had finally broke through and had a W. And I mean, I can remember calling the wife just off. the Scoring tent right there, just in tears, and like, baby, we did it. You know, and had a good solid check, and I was part of him growing. Such a special time. And then the following year was '09, and that's when he just went crazy. You know, he had two wins. He won Hilton Head by ten, and then he won Memphis by five. And uh, he was just on fire. And we just had a special run. I mean, it was such it was so, so cool to be a part of that. And him kind of getting what he deserved in his. PGA Tour career, you know, I'm not, you know, I mean, I was a little bitty piece of the puzzle. You know, he had switched teachers the year that I signed on, and he had gotten smarter, and, you know, he had just, everything just kind of came together all at once, and I just had to be standing there beside him. It was pretty cool. Kip, I read that outside of Augusta National, Hilton Head is your favorite tournament out on tour. Talk about why. 
Well, one, I mean, one reason is because we had so much success there. The other reason is my little brother was the assistant pro at Harbortown. Brent, you know, caddies on tour as well. He was the assistant pro down there at Harbortown for like three years. And John Farrell was the head pro that gave him the job. And I just have so many dear friends around the area. Plus, Brian went by 10. And plus, we used to, Brent and all his flunky friends used to come down from Chattanooga. And we used to rent a great big house. I mean, we, we've had eight-bedroom houses before down there on the island. Everybody wow. chucks in a chunk of money. And then we just cook, you know, and drink like crazy and just have so we used to have the most fun there. So part of that's died out now that me and Brent can't seem to stay out, you know, active on tours as, as, as we once were, but, uh, I'm not giving up. Brent kind of feels like he's giving up. I'm not giving up. I know that something good is going to come my way if I just keep pedaling along, you know. Kip, I have to believe that one of the best perks of being a caddy may also be one of the biggest negatives, and that's all the travel. I mean, you get to see places that most of us will never see, but the opposite side of that coin is you're the one making all the travel arrangements. It's a life with long stretches away from your wife and family, living out of suitcases, doing laundry at the hotel. Talk about the good and the bad that comes with life out on tour as a caddy. Well, you said it, the, the, the part of being gone, you know, uh, I have two, I raised two beautiful daughters, you know, and they're still doing great in life, but I was a club pro at the time when they were growing up, their formative years and when they were being, you know, becoming little women to speak. And I had a beautiful wife and a smart, intelligent wife who's always been supportive, but my girls were pretty much raised before I took off and hit the road. That was a blessing. I was lucky, you know, I think my, Youngest was a senior in high school before I finally started being a gone dad, you know, being gone like two thirds of the year, just completely out of the picture, you know, except for phone calls and stuff. But, uh, that part stinks. Being gone stinks. And sometimes the travel can really be painful and hurtful when your flights get canceled and the rental cars don't happen and things like that. You got to bounce from hotel to hotel. But the other side of it can be just as beautiful you know i get to go in to new york and miami and la and london china and north and korea <clears throat> i mean i get to see the world in sunshine and pretty much everywhere i go you know we follow the sun i mean i'm such a blessed boy we get to go to the ball games and we get sweet tickets and we get backstage concert tickets and all the other all the negative stuff just gets so offset by my job. I have never tired of caddying. And I know it burns out a lot of caddies, but man, you know, I'm 61, heading to 62 here in a month, and I just can't wait for the sun to come up tomorrow. You know, I'm up here in Canada this week, and I got a one-week deal because of uh, Jason Duffner's caddy, one of my dearest friends on tour, uh, Brandon Antis. He, he never got the jab, so he couldn't come across the board. The, the Canucks wouldn't let him in here not getting the the shot so i got a chance to come up and work for duff me and duff get started tomorrow and i just can't wait for the sun to come up so i get to do it all again with him and kip speaking of your wife sissy back in 2016 she wrote a wonderful tweet about the start of the new season which meant it was time for her to put back on her unconditional cheerleader uniform her travel agent hat clear her psychologist couch and make herself available at a moment's notice to rearrange fix, reserve, or help with everything that comes along with life being apart. 
Talk about her part and life being the wife of a tour caddy. Listen, the uh, divorce rate on the PGA Tour for caddies and players is so high because it's such a stressful job for a, a relationship. And if you ain't got a strong-willed, very supportive, very secure, great woman in your life, you're heading for a disaster. I'd say if you don't, you need to get out if you want to keep that, that girl. But if you got somebody like I got, me and sister are working on 35 years. I've been caddying. This is my 19th year. and It's not easy, Chris. Good God, it's hard. And we're separated so much. She has to do the, you know, she has to do the, the little chores around the house that a man should be doing. And she has to do all the bills. She's got to sit there at night and listen to you cry on her shoulder about the players not doing right, doing bad things, and whatever they're doing on the golf course. And it's, it's just, you need a strong woman, and I got one, man. I got a good one, but that's how it somehow uh, worked out for me. I mean, it's it's that that piece that she wrote. I think it should get retweeted or put on the the in Golf Digest every single month because it's such a beautifully written thing about how we're out here helping guys. You know, our dreams have kind of burned out, but we're helping the guys chase their dreams down now. And it was. It was such a wonderful piece. She's got a way with the pen, man, like crazy. Those things that Sissy does for you, it would seem to me that you have to do those same things for your player. I mean, your part-time psychologist, the guy who has to fix everything when the wheels come off and build up his confidence. Talk about what you do, aside from giving your player yardages and handing him a club, all the things that you do that we don't see. So you hit the nail on the head, you know. We we pick up the kids from the daycare, you know, we run their laundry over across the town and you know, we go to the airport and pick up their luggage when it's lost and things like that. I mean we're I call my I introduce myself on the first tee, you know, when to the score, you know, they wanna know who's caddies they can rely on to ask a question. I'll always go up to the score and I'll say, I'm Kip Hilly and I'm uh uh Will McGurk's outdoor butler. That's what I call myself, outdoor <laughs> butler. But I'm not just a caddy. I do I do everything, and that's part of my job. You know, these guys, they pay us good money. You know, they're making good money, but good guys, some of these guys pay so great. They give a big chunk of their, their cash to us to help us keep going out there. But uh, we do a lot. It's not just that, but I, I think, Chris, the, the, the thing that and I, I think back to the story, the guy's just a mental giant. Now, he was not a mental giant when he played. You know, he has flashes where he kills it. But him not being a mental giant helps him, helps him help his man be a mental giant on the golf course. You know, he had the negative thoughts come in his head. And he had things, and he fights them off sometimes. And you can't beat him with a, a daggum rubber hose. You can't beat Tori's so dang good at the game. But, you know, he failed in, he failed in his career a little bit, just like me. I mean, he didn't fail as miserably as I did, but he failed too. Like I said, he stepped in those holes and he'll, he'll help every player that ever, anybody ever touches. He'll help them avoid those holes. And, uh, that's what we do, bud. Kip, just a couple of more before I let you go. And I want to take you back to 2011. Brian Gay had a great deal of success at the FedEx St. Jude Classic. He won it in 2009. 
you get an automatic berth to play in the tournament that year because you're the PGA section champion. But by accepting that spot in the field and not being on Brian's bag, you're pretty much giving up a guaranteed large paycheck. Was it a difficult decision to play that week versus being on his bag? <laughs> oh, really? I mean, if you look back to my golf career, you can point. I mean, there's like, there's like 15 or 20 big giant things where like you have a big star on most days. If you look like, like here, Kip made a mistake. Here, Kip made a mistake. Now we had a big giant red star beside it, man. You go, oh, that was a mistake. Kip decided to try and play and beat those idiots, and he can't do it a hundred times, and he passed on at him for Brian Gay. I don't think Brian Gay cashed a huge check that week. I don't, maybe he did, but I don't remember it. But I, I know, you know, my heart at that time, uh, the 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 fire had burned out, but it was still a little amber glowing in there, and I thought maybe I could just career for two days and make the cut. And even if I don't, you know, I get to experience my last. I knew that was going to be my last PGA Tour event when I teed it up in Memphis. I knew it would be my last one. It was 100% going to be my last one. And getting to hang out there at week with the players and stuff and eating player dining, it was so special. In fact, I made an announcement in player dining. That was like Wednesday of the, the tournament. I'm sitting up in the top thing up there in player dining, air conditioning, waiters just waiting on your hand and foot and just all the food and the buffets and everything. And I'm looking out the windows and the caddies are out there under the trees just burning up, waiting on the players to walk out. And I stood up in player dining. I said, fellas, I'd like to make an announcement. And I said, uh, everybody got real quiet. And I mean, Ernie Hills and everybody was in there. There's a bunch of players. And I said, we as players, I said, I think we really need to start letting these caddies come in here and hang out with us and eat this nice food with us. I said, but let's start it next week. (laughs) 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 But it was a great week, even though I mean it was a terrible, dumb decision. But God, what a great week that was to play. I mean, I shot one sixty. I shot eighty one seventy nine, and I made. I never missed a putt inside of ten feet for two days. I hit it everywhere. Good God. I broke the outdoor provisional ball record for those two days on the PGA Tour trip. <laughs> and Kip, you were inducted into the Chattanooga Sports Hall of Fame. What was it like being recognized like that in your hometown? Well, the most special part of all that, Chris, is my father had gone in there before me a few years prior for a uh, fast pitch softball. So getting my name in one of the things along with my wonderful, wonderful father, Calvin Howard. I'm Calvin Howard Henley the third, by the way. It sounds very important, but it's not. But uh, uh, it is important in the name. But my father, Sammy Henley, who, who was Calvin Howard Henley Jr., was already in there before I got there. So that was the thing that meant the most to me, being in there with my dad. But to get recognized, and, you know, I feel like uh, Tennessee Golf Hall of Fame, I'm just, you know, I'm kind of on the, I'm sitting there on the ledge, hanging on with my fingertips trying to pull myself up to get that and I think I need to accomplish one or two more great things as a senior to where they almost won't be able to keep me out of that I think but uh, obviously there's so many people in that thing that have uh, accomplished so much more than me but I've got a pretty good track record and the way the golf's going now to where the fields are so strong it's hard to stay on top you know 
been hard to win tournaments year after year like I used to when there was much competition. There was competition, but not like it is now. It's deep. So guys' careers aren't going to look as spectacular as some of the guys in years past because you just can't beat these cats day in and day out because they're just as good as you are now. So I think that if I can accomplish one or two more things or do something, you know, to really help people out in the game or something like that, that may be, as I get older, that's where my mind starts to turn now. You know, maybe I need to give back more to the tour and help kids and teach more and, and maybe that will, but I, I'm really want to be in that Tennessee golf hall of fame. All the same someday. Kip, you're a great follow on Twitter. Remind our listeners how they can stay up to date with all the great things you're doing and follow you on social media. Yeah. Well, I'm just Kip Kinley on Twitter. and I mean, I, I don't even know what I am on Instagram. I don't do much. But if you're not 18, you got to ask your folks to follow me on Twitter. <laughs> I curse and things like that. And I play, I'm a little bit past G rated on there, but. I have fun and I laugh and that's what I, you know, I try to pass along some good information here and there, Chris, but it's more about enjoying life and, you know, la- uh, loving, laughing. You know, I got that side of my personality from my mom. My mom loved to laugh and pull jokes and stuff. And I live for that. So I want people around me smiling and laughing, bud. Kip, you're fantastic. I can't thank you enough for being patient with the show tonight and staying and being a part of it. You always make this segment so much fun. I hope we get the privilege of catching up with you again soon. If you have me on again and I follow the story, I will I will pass. I won't do it. That's that's too big a shoes to, to come in there behind, man. But I enjoyed <laughs> it, Chris, and you know I love being on here with you, bud. I appreciate that and you very much, Kip. The best of luck to you and Duff up at the Canadian Open this week. I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Yeah, you guys pull for Duff in the Canadian Open this week. Great golf course, by the way. St. George in Canada. Holy cow, what a track. Amazing. All right, man. I appreciate you. Absolutely. Rooting hard for both of you this week. Take care, my friend. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up soon. That is the great Kip Henley. And folks, you got to follow him on Twitter, at Kip Henley. He's hilarious. Such a fun guy. And you can hear it in his voice, right? He makes every time he comes on the show, he makes this segment so much fun. Because he has fun at what he does, and he's really good at it. And folks, you don't get into a Chattanooga Sports Hall of Fame on accident. He had a great career in and around the state of Tennessee. Should be in the Tennessee Golf Hall of Fame. Can't imagine what could possibly be keeping him out of it based on the number of tournaments that he's won in and around that state. So I'll be pulling hard for him to get in there. He deserves it. All right, my friends, it is time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the Tee. My sincere thanks go out to Tim Simpson, Ian Baker Finch, Paul Tesori, and Kip Henley for joining me tonight. Scheduled to join me next week are three of the top instructors in the game, Brian Jacobs, Cindy Miller, and Nancy Corsolino. So really excited about having those three as part of the show. Plus the owner of Purcell Farms Golf Course over in Alabama, David Purcell, We'll be back on the show. So it's going to be a great one, folks. I hope you'll come back and join me and be a part of it. You can listen to this show as a podcast on just about every major podcast app. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Audioboom, Player.fm, Podbean. If you've got a favorite podcasting app, just go into the search bar, type in Next on the T. I'm sure we're probably on there as well. Please also check out our website, nextonthetea.net, to see what our upcoming guest schedule looks like. 
Plus, we give you links back to recent episodes and individual guest segments. So whether you've got 20 minutes or two hours, we've got some great golf content there for you. Folks, I can't thank you enough for tuning in and listening to the show tonight. I know there are a lot of great golf podcasts out there. I can't thank you enough for continuing to make Next on the Tee a part of your golf content. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.